0: is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation.
1: Hello, I'm Phil McKinney, and welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where we're all about helping you go from idea to launching your innovation. Now, we've been saying that tagline is part of the show since we started the show back in July and the podcast since 2005. And we really do mean it. Part of the, the mission behind this show is really to help you, the listener, take your ideas and really transform those into game changing innovations, whichever direction they may take. Now, this week the show is going to be a little bit different. There's no guest this week, as you know, as the uh, from the standpoint of the uh, you know having guests come in and kind of share their story about what it is that they do. In this case, we're going to actually. Do it from the standpoint of answering questions from you, the listeners. Now, a number of you have been sending me questions over the last uh, five months, and many of you have been listeners of the podcast for quite some time before uh, we syndicated it to the radio show. So I have not pre-canned any answers. These are just a random list of questions. I actually had somebody go back through all of the emails over the last five months and pull together all the questions that we've gotten asked. And I'm just gonna randomly go through these today. Now, going forward, we're gonna do this on a periodic basis. We tend to get a pretty strong feedback from you that you like this, it's an opportunity for you to ask questions that are really kind of uh, sitting on top of mind for you, whether you're uh, an entrepreneur thinking about starting a business or whether you're an innovator trying to do innovations inside of medium and large organizations. This is your chance to answer the ask the questions that I'll just do my best shot at answering them. Hey, and if I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you I don't know the answer. Um, now, I will tell you, I'm scanning this list. We go across a pretty wide range of topics, everything from the the more common ones about ideas and innovating inside large organizations, etc., to some pretty specific questions around Hewlett Packard and my, my experience at HP and what HP is going through right now, um, and uh yes there actually is a question on carly fiorina i will answer that question we'll now pull that off till later on we'll get through some of the more the more what i would call meaty topics up here up front so i'm just going to go through these in order um well not really in order i'm going to group them i guess just to kind of bring some semblance of organization here to uh, answering the question so the first question i'm going to answer uh, comes from a long time listener and the question is, is What is the biggest mistakes companies make when starting an innovation effort? So this is probably the one question I get. In many cases, I get this question from internal innovators who are trying to see if their company is making those mistakes. So the one point here is is when you say starting an innovation effort, I'm not quite sure what the person means by effort. I'm going to assume it means You know, the the company's getting around to maybe forming an innovation team, and they're going to start putting some more efforts behind it. The key here is, is there's two things that tend to trip most organizations out when they're trying to do these innovation efforts, or starting something new, and it's time and money. Are they going to commit enough resources in the form of money? Is it a meaningful amount of money, and is it enough money over the extended period of time? And the other is is time time in the form of resources is the ceo going to spend enough time at this is this is the management team going to spend enough time on this and do they allocate not the b string but the a string players to whatever the innovation efforts on and so the biggest mistake i get is, is people organizations ceos want to stand up thump their chest and say "Woo, we're going to go off and do these great innovation efforts but then, behind the scenes, they really don't put the resources in the form of time and money. Now, this kind of leads into this whole, the, the questions that I've gotten also, and there's one on here on the list around uh, the seven laws. So, back in, um, I'm going to say it was uh, September-ish, I'm going to go, I don't have the exact date, of 2011, um, I had actually taken a medical leave of absence from Hewlett-Packard. A bunch of things happened at HP, and I'll share those maybe in this, maybe as part of the answer to this question. But I had gone, grown frustrated on um, what are the most common mistakes corporations make from the standpoint of what are the, all the elements you have to have in place in order to be very, very successful in your innovation efforts. And I wrote a blog post called "The Seven Laws of Innovation." Now, I just wrote this as kind of almost personal therapy, and this thing has just taken off like a rocket. Now, some of the laws are things like law of leadership, does does the senior executive really committed, the law of resources in the form of money and time, the law of patience, do you have enough patience, the law of execution, sitting around talking about it and doing a bunch of brainstorming sessions is of zero value. You got to get out there and you actually got to go do it. So I wrote this seven laws of innovation and that kind of feeds both into answering this question of the biggest mistakes and then the question about how the seven laws came about. So let me answer that question. So how did the seven laws come about? As I said, I wrote it out of frustration, but you have to back up to the summer of 2011 and what was going on. I'd actually had planned for some minor surgery and so I was planning to take some time off for that and also take a little bit of a personal sabbatical. Um, I had been through uh, about two CEOs. I was in my third CEO at HP. Um, and typically nothing ever happens in the summertime. So I actually took the time some, took some time off. Um, and lo and behold, while I was on the, out on the medical sabbatical, you'll recall that that's when Hewlett-Packard announced um, that they were going to acquire autonomy. Um, they were going to shut down all of the work on the Palm phones and the Palm Effort. Uh, in mobile platforms, and then also they were going to spin out the uh, PC division. Um, And actually, I wasn't even there. I wasn't included in any of those discussions. Um, So through a a series of activities over a pretty short period of time of a few days, I sat down and pinned um, this blog post called The Seven Laws of Innovation. (laughs) Interestingly enough, a reporter who I know pretty well over at Fast Company uh, picked up that uh, article and wrote its own article with the headline of, but did HP violate the seven laws of innovation? Um, and that was kind of the tipping point for me to make the decision to retire out of HP um, through a process of that current CEO being removed. Meg Whitman coming in as the new CEO, I agreed to stay through the end of the year. Um, but interestingly enough, that's those seven laws have been adopted Pretty broadly, um, there's actually posters that are available over at the store at innovation.tools. Uh, you can buy those 100% of the proceeds for the posters uh, get donated to HackingAutism.org, one of the nonprofits that I am very involved in helping those on the autism spectrum be able to have a long meaningful lives and careers. Uh, So we created these posters. A lot of companies or a lot of employees buy these posters, stick them up up on their cube walls, in some cases, I think, to actually annoy their bosses. Um, So that's how the Seven Laws came about, and it kind of ties into the most common mistakes. And the Seven Laws were really this collection of my frustration as a CTO, as a head of an innovation for a large multinational company, um, even a company that's heavily focused on innovation, where they got it wrong, where we got it wrong, and I can't put the blame on somebody else. As, a, as the CTO, part of this rests with me. And that's probably one of my uh, you know, bigger uh, frustrations from the standpoint of I look back on my own career in the innovation game of uh, how hard do you fight and do you really take it to the mat? Um, and so that answers that question. Biggest mistakes companies make um go check out the seven laws actually i'll link to i'll link to the seven laws in the uh, the show notes so that uh, you can go over there and find that and again if you want to buy the poster it's over at innovation.tools you can uh, buy that and again 100 percent of the proceeds from all the poster sales uh, goes to hackingautism.org um Let's see if we got another really kind of a quick question here. Um, how did I get into doing the podcasting? Actually, that's probably not a quick question, but I'll start it off and we'll pick it up after the commercial break. Uh, this show's been going on for 11 years. March 22nd, 2005, was the very first episode of Killer Innovations, recorded in the bathroom of the Marriott Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. It's amazing. I can remember that fact. Um, but it was really started as a way to pay back my early mentor, Bob Davis. Uh, later in my career, I asked him how I could pay it back, given all the investment and time he made in my career, and he laughed and said, you can't pay it back. You have to pay it forward. Uh, thus, that's how the podcast came about. Uh, we've been doing it 11 years. It'll be 12 years uh, this coming March, March 22nd. We always do a big anniversary show uh, each year when we do the show, and I remind people that I was doing podcasting before there was iTunes. Um So we'll pick this up some more after the commercial break. I've got some more questions, including the question that I get most common these days ever since the election here in the United States, and that is my opinion on Carly Fiorina. So I'll answer that. Stay tuned. We're going to take a a quick commercial break. We'll answer some more of your questions. And then, as usual, we will have a killer question in the last segment of the show, so stay right there. I'm Phil McKinney. You're listening to Killer Innovations.
0: radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovators Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing, killer innovation
1: hello i'm phil mckinney and welcome back to killer innovations we are taking a little bit of a sidestep to our normal format of having uh leading innovators on the show and instead um fielding questions from you the audience so these are questions that uh you sent in somebody else on the team has compiled them all up and handed them to me so there are no pre-canned answers I am truly trying to answer these on the fly. I did cheat, though, during the commercial break. I did read ahead to get my heads and thoughts about some of the questions that are being answered. Some of them are uh, actually pretty interesting. So first off, let me pick up uh, a question I wanted to, that I thought was really interesting that was in the list here is, is what is your biggest innovation failure? And then what is your biggest innovation success? Um, if you've been a long time listener to the show, you know that I'm a big believer in we have to just face up to that we're going to fail. We're going to try things. We're going to try to make them work. They just don't work. Um, and therefore, uh, they, uh, uh, you learn from them, though, and then you pick up and you go forward. At the same time, though, you also have the opportunity that if you fail enough and you can keep trying, that you eventually will have a, a big success. So, I'm going to start off with what is my biggest innovation failure. One is, is I've gone back through, I've been spending probably the last five or six months going back through my Idea Notebooks. And probably the biggest shocking thing was the things that I'd written down in my notebooks that I had flagged as really important uh, ideas, I just never executed on them. So I think my, one of my biggest failures is, and I suffer from this just like everybody else does, is, is you got lots of ideas, you can stack them all up, you can write them in your Idea Notebooks, but they're of zero value unless you execute them. I think the the though the, the more specifically an example of a failure that, you know, probably haunts me more uh, than anything else is the failure of the Palm acquisition at Hewlett Packard, combining HP's hardware power with the Palm operating system, uh, WebOS. I thought that was going to be just an absolute breakthrough, new kind of mobile platform experience. Prior to the Palm, there was actually a hardware platform. A tablet product that was being worked on at HP. Um, we were actually working with um, a certain very large mag- magazine manu- uh, producer, publisher. Um, and we were creating one of the very first, really what I would call rich digital magazines. It's a magazine, if you're in the tech world, you know it by name. Um, we were working very hard with them. Uh, but the leadership at HP killed that product um, that magazine, subsequently, we, we signed over our work on it to the magazine publisher, and they actually released that on the iPad. And it was one of the big early wins in magazine publishing and on the iPad. And in this case, then we went back and we did the Palm acquisition, and it was probably my biggest frustration that we couldn't make that work. Uh, not completely underneath my control, but uh, one that I had high hopes and ones that I, I was probably the most frustrated on. What was the biggest uh, innovation success? Well, one is, is I think this podcast is an innovation success. As I shared before the commercial break, I started this March 22nd of 2005. The podcast started off be even even before iTunes even existed. Podcasting was extremely small. There was only a handful of us that were doing regular shows. And in fact, the first year of the show, uh, 52 weeks, we put 50 shows out for the Killer Innovations um, and that kind of established the footprint for the, the, the four killer innovations. And the show's kind of waned on being on a regular schedule or being periodic. One of my motivations as to why we're syndicating this on radio now was one, I got approached to do this, but two, it's also to force the discipline of putting out the show each and every week. Um, I think it's that form of just being consistent and delivering you what I hope that you find is great content some things that you would find useful um, that's really the motivation for this but having to do uh, being on the radio live every sunday at a specific time and then producing the podcast afterwards um, that discipline i find uh, helps me i'm a big believer in in using time boxing so one way that i innovate is i kind of commit myself to something commit myself to a schedule and have to deliver in this case of the podcast I've committed to the weekly schedule of the radio show, and that's forcing me to continue to uh, work at and deliver this podcast. And we're constantly experimenting with new things. And in fact, this week, uh, we're uh, just finalizing the design for the new studio. Um, That will come together sometime in the beginning part of next year. And then we'll be in a position to actually be able to produce more content, uh, hopefully continuing to improve the audio quality and then eventually be able to make a video of the podcast being made that available too. So uh, the other, probably the biggest innovation success was really the transformation um, of Hewlett Packard's personal systems group, the PC division. Uh, when I took over uh, in my CTO role, that division was losing a billion dollars and it was number three, number four in the market. Through a lot of teamwork, some great people, great support. Uh, we took it from losing a billion dollars being number three, number four in market share to taking it to number one market share and making four and a half billion dollars in profit. So you're talking about a five and a half billion dollar swing um, and products that went on to win uh, best product design products, three three years running being named to uh, uh, fast companies, 50 most creative companies, and specifically around those products, products like Blackbird and um, etc uh, but again I take that as probably the biggest innovation success but I played a small part the team that came rallied around the innovation efforts in that group including all the product teams they deserve the bulk of the credit but it's one that I um, really uh, take a, a whole lot of pride in and uh, that team a lot of that team is still there doing great work um, at, uh, at Healer Packard so that. I think kind of addresses both the biggest failures and the biggest successes for me from the standpoint of the successes. Yeah, they're great. You get little awards. I've got plaques and posters on my office here uh, about the products that turn out to win and be quite successful. But for me, it's also about taking those risks and trying things that are, that are not going to work out like this radio show. This is a, was a pure roll of the dice. You know, could I do a weekly show? with live guests doing interviews um and i'm going to leave that voting up to you as to whether or not you think oh, i'm doing a good job or if you've got suggestions on how to improve it drop me a note um but it's about taking these risks and not being afraid that you're going to trip fall land flat on your face and uh and and therefore you got to pick yourself up part of that is 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 by trying these things out and, and tripping and failing and trying it again you learn but if you stay doing the same thing you've done all the time, I've just found that once you've like, achieved a major success in an area, sometimes you just got to pick up and go in a completely different area. That's where you're going to find that next success. It's not doing better than what you did two years ago or just a slightly better product you did five years ago. you got to go in a completely new area. That's where innovators really find their way through the whole process. So stay tuned. We're going to answer some questions specifically around the Hewlett-Packard split, and the most common question I get these days is on what I think of Carly and her running for president. So stay right there. We're going to be right back after this short commercial break. I'm Phil McKinney, and you're listening to Killer Innovations.
0: Biz Talk Radio. Is Killer Innovations a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate? Welcome to the Innovators Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation.
1: Welcome back to Killer Innovations. I'm your host, Phil McKinney. We're picking up where we left off. I'm answering a series of questions that you all submitted uh, via email. One of the questions I commonly get is about. Where's the best way to find resources and tools, etc? Well, one is obviously Google search and a number of sites. Uh, there's a couple of things I'm going to announce today that uh, hopefully you'll find useful. One is is I don't know it was probably four years ago, three years ago I put together a two- hour audio course. Um, it was released on CD yes, back when CDs were still probably probably five or six years ago now. Um, it's still available up on Amazon. You can go search for it. Just search for Phil McKinney um, at Amazon. I think the publisher is selling it for like twenty bucks or something like that now um, on that on on, uh, on Amazon. Uh, today, though, I'm going to give it away for free. Um, all the listeners for the show, radio show, for the podcast, you can get it for free. So the way to get it for free is just text me the word "innovate" to three three four 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 or you can go to killerinnovations.com killer slash innovate, type in your email address, um, you'll get an email back with all the links to download the audio files, the artwork, everything. Um, that's up on Amazon for 20 bucks. Um, and again, 100% of the proceeds uh, for that go to hackingautism.org. We, we donate, uh, my wife and I, we donate all of the author royalties from the book, uh, all any revenue that comes in from Um, Any of the Amazon sales uh, like this or the posters or anything like that all get donated uh, to the charities that uh, we're involved in. So the two questions now that I get most often these days uh, is related, again, to my years at Hewlett Packard. I was there for 10 years, retiring in uh, December of 11, or at least I thought I was retiring. But most recently, with the election underway, um, a number of people asked for my opinion of Carly and then also the opinion of HP splitting into two. So I'm going to take the HP splitting into two first, and then I'll answer the Carly question. So the question is, is what is your opinion of HP's split? So November 1, Hewlett Packard split into two separate companies. Uh, Hewlett Packard and Enterprise, which is the commercial large platform business. Um, and then HP Inc., which is the old PCs, printers, laptops, displays, um, that kind of stuff. And the question I get is, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And quite honestly, I think it's actually a great thing. If you look back in Healer Packard's history, it's the only Fortune 25 company that has actually gone through five fundamental transformations of its business, not just little tweaks and does something a little different. Five fundamental transformations. Bill Hewlett and David Packard set a phenomenal foundation. It's a great company, great people. Um... But it's that ability to look and say, we need to totally transform our business. When it come when it went from being the uh, test and measurements to computers, when it went into computers, Bill and Dave both did not believe that that was going to be the path to success. He got convinced. However, he also made the prediction that HP would be the number one computer manufacturer in 25 years. Interestingly enough, it became number one in year 23. Um, so that's what I would call patience and perseverance, sticking with it. So HP, when you look back in the history, when they've made these transformations, they burn the boat. They, they cut everything back. They focus on one thing. They commit the resources. They know it's a bet the business uh, bet. That's what HP needs to do in both areas, both in the consumer products and the commercial products, uh, con- personal devices, enterprise servers, um, software, etc. The splitting of the company, I personally think is actually a, a great thing. The next question I get most common, and I get this literally every day. I get it from reporters. I get it from, uh, leaders whenever I'm out and about. It's the most common question I get from the audiences when I'm giving my speeches is what is my opinion of Carly and Carly running for president? Now, a little bit of history here. I, uh, was not at HP when Carly joined. I came in after Carly joined. Um, I had retired uh, my first retirement out of Telligent. We had grown that business. Um, I cashed out, was taking some time off, and HP actually contacted me to come in and help HP out, help Carly and the team out post the merger or acquisition of Compaq. So I came in in that time frame. So that's my perspective. You just have to, to know that. I knew Carly through Alex Mandel, who is my boss at Intelligent. Uh, Alex is the former president of AT&T. Um, and Carly actually reported directly to Alex. Uh, so I came in having that perspective, having Carly work for Alex, I worked for Alex. Uh, I was come in, I was asked to come in. I agreed to go to HP for one year, so just to help out post the compact merger, specifically in some some key troubling areas. So I came in to do that work, ended up staying for ten, and now I honestly have to say I've always been impressed with Carly. I've been in meetings with her, um, and have uh, uh, seen her up close and personal in her dealings. Um, And I think you know she's incredibly smart. She's incredibly charismatic. Um, I think uh, she, uh, uh, you know, keep in mind that she was the first woman to run a Fortune twenty five company back when she took over as CEO at Hewlett Packard. So all in all, I actually like her. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to vote for her, because I think there's still a lot of other really good, strong candidates. But I do think that some of the criticism with regards to the compact merger and with the firing of employees, I mean, there's been CEOs at HP that have actually fired uh, many more employees than what Carly did. And if you look at USA Today did an analysis of Carly compared to all the other CEOs, with regards to their financial performance, and Carly was not the worst from the standpoint of, if you take into account the economic downturn and what other companies' performance numbers look like, so I think um, I think some of the, the the use of the the HP experience is either for or against is needs needs a little bit more balance, but all in all, um, I I think you know people have seen her in the debate. People seem to be intrigued by her. She seems to be you know a lot of people want to know. What is she really like in person? Um, Like I said, I've always been impressed with her. Uh, I always got along with her very well. uh, um, And uh, I thought that or I do think that uh, she is uh, incredibly astute, very fast learner, uh, very charismatic, great visionary, great strategist. Um, So uh, there you have it. Now, maybe I can just take this audio and just distribute it to everybody. And I can stop getting uh, questions literally every day from the uh, from press and uh, um, and reporters. The next question I get asked, or I've been getting asked about most recently, is about a series of articles that I've been writing. They've been appearing over in Pulse on LinkedIn, along with Medium, and I've been posting them on my blog around American innovation. I'm a pretty, I'm a big skeptic on where we're heading on the. U.S.'s ability to contain and, and grow its leadership in the innovation space. Really tied to two areas. One is education, and two is uh, government support for the innovation efforts. So on the education side, uh, you've heard it before. I've been a big, huge critic for years. I've got an entire chapter on my book outlining some of the work that I was doing with the U.S. Department of Education uh, to try to innovate K-12 education. My view is, is for years, we've been producing uh, the world's greatest test takers. Now, surprisingly enough here, two weeks ago, President Obama actually uh, put forward a new program to actually reduce the dependency on test taking. And he did that, and if you read the, the article on that on it, it's actually quite interesting because he points out that this is um, has not achieved the results and that he recognizes that we've focused so much on the test. So that's actually the good thing. With regards to the government, if you look at government-supportive programs like DARPA or SBIR, Small Business Innovation Funds, those types of things, they've been decreasing at such a rate, Um, and the tax um, structure actually encourages companies to do less uh, long-term R&D and focus more on applied research, which is the near term. So we're leaving long-range, long R&D to other players, and other countries are stepping in. And the innovation, you look at it from patents being issued in China, Japan, even India now, um, the number of patents being awarded um, is starting to really put the pressure on the United States. So uh, that's my view. I think uh, if you want to continue to see or if you want to receive the series of articles that I've been writing, you can go over to philmckinney.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there. um, And uh, you'll get them each week as as I post them. So... We're going to wrap this up if you've got questions that you would like answered just drop them to me at phil at killer i'll put together those answers get those back to you and save some of those up um, for the for the ones that are most common and use them in an upcoming show so hopefully you found this useful um again just trying to address the most common questions that i get because i'm sure everybody else has them So stay right there where you're at. We're going to take this quick commercial break. When we come back, we've got a just absolute great killer question this week, one that's kind of a little bit of a twist. So stay right where you're at. We'll be back. This is Phil McKinney on Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network.
0: BizTalk Radio. This is Killer Innovations, a show about ideas, creativity, and how you can innovate. Welcome to the Innovator's Garage, where you learn to create your next game-changing killer innovation.
1: Welcome back to the last segment of the show. This is where we normally pose a killer question, a question that causes you to look at your opportunity or problems in a unique and different way. Part of this is to drive just this whole process of exercising your creative muscle, don't wait till you have the problem. Use these questions as a way to exercise that muscle, get up off that, you know, what I call couch potato mode, and get out there and actually exercise that creative muscle and get it tuned up so that when you do have those opportunities appear before you, or you got that problem that pops up, you're ready to execute. So so what is this week's killer question? This week's killer question is: is, who complains about my product? Now we all get complaints, we get criticisms from our boss. We get if we if we got a product out in the marketplace, we're going to hear feedback on it. Criticisms are some of the best sources of ideas that you can ever get your hands on. Not long ago, a passenger complaint letter to Virgin Atlantic circulated around the web, and I love these. These are these ones that just go viral. It was long. It had photographs. It was somewhat a little bit of tongue in cheek, but it was funny, and it made a few good points about the bad food and bad service at this particular. A passenger had experienced. Now, all those years later, it still occasionally shows up as one of the most read stories on the Telegraph over in the UK. Now, in 2009, another disgruntled passenger created a music video about how United baggage handlers had broken his $3,500 Taylor guitar. He uploaded the song to YouTube, and to date, it has been viewed more than 15 million times. United's customer service department, which originally denied him the, any kind of compensation of uh, not our problem, quickly changed their minds as the video went viral. Now, they adjusted their tone from being you know, somewhat defensive to humorous, and then actually held a meeting with the passenger. And eventually, the airline made a charitable donation to a jazz school in this particular passenger's name. He didn't want the money back. He just wanted to make the point and hopefully change the culture at United. The problem is, is that none of their existing former or potential customer care it, that United eventually resolved the customer complaint. They don't care. All they remember is that it took a funny song and nine, 9 million YouTubes at the time it was finally resolved to get the airline to do anything. Now, the point is it's easier than ever to find out what your customers are thinking and saying about you these days. It's also much easier for their opinions to go viral. So it's imperative that you respond to your customers with the same speed and immediacy that they use to critique you with. Now, social networking sites are fundamentally changing the nature of customer complaints. Customer complaints are morphing from one-off exchanges between a customer and a service rep into an ongoing conversation, often in real time, visible to the public and open to anyone who cares to comment. By monitoring these sites, you can hear what your customers are saying about you without them even being aware that their opinion is being heard. Now, when I was still at HP, I found out about a notebook hinge problem through Twitter. How? Now, I have the Hootsuite app, and I have it up all the time, and I constantly have keywords, so it flags me whenever those keywords are tweeted or posted on Facebook by anybody. Um, and so I, you know, just, it's just a way for me to stay on top of everything. Now, one day I was sitting in my office, and a customer tweeted that he was having a problem with a hinge on his HP notebook. Now the complaint got my attention, it pops up on my screen, I put down what I was doing and I was getting ready to respond to the tweet, but before I could even get my hands to the keyboard, another customer replied, saying, oh, it's a known problem, HP has a report, a repair protocol for it, and then a few seconds later he actually tweeted them the URL link and the phone number for them to get it fixed. Now what? I was the CTO of HP's PC division at the time, and even I had no idea that A, there was a problem, or B, there was a solution. Yet here was a customer who was at least two steps ahead of me. So I grabbed the phone, I dialed the product manager for that particular laptop and asked, What's going on? I'm hearing about this hinge problem. Now the person on the other end nearly had a heart attack. His team was carefully preparing an internal email describing the problem. And suddenly the CTO for the division is breathing down his neck asking what the heck is going on. Now the reality is you can no longer keep problems like this off the radar either within your organization or with your customers. Your only option is to engage with the people who care enough to make their feelings public. And don't stop at simply resolving an issue. The customers who take time out to post their opinions or direct others to solutions are the ones who are actually thought about what you do and how you do it. Now, odds are, if they complain about what you're doing, they've also thought about ways to do it better. So ask them. And that's important you've got all of these means and all of these tools now to watch your customers see what they say about your product leverage them build a community ask them about their opinions in fact in my case when i'm designing new products or new technologies i have a a small group of people that actually helped me before the radio show even launched give me some input on the format for the radio show it's about 300 of the most loyal uh, fans that have commented or send me emails or who engage with me. And, hey, if you want to be on that list, just drop me a note. I'll add you on the list, and you'll get included behind the scenes as we do new things, whether it's the new radio show. I'm getting ready to send out the new design for the studio to that group to get their opinion on the studio design. Um, but it's through that group of about 300, 325 people that is kind of my sounding board for the things that I'm doing, things I'm designing on, things that I'm working on. So from that standpoint, find that group, nurture them, and really take advantage of them. So the sparking points for this week is, is how do you receive and respond to customer complaints? Do you ever see them directly or are they filtered through some specific department? Are your customers having real conversations on Twitter, Facebook, or Yelp about what you're doing and how you're and how, how you are doing to engage with them? Do you have the flexibility to respond immediately or do you have to wait for someone to officially respond? Can you identify at the top of your head right now the most common complaints your customer receives? And then how do those complaints make their way into future products? So get out your idea notebook, 10 minutes a day. That's all you need to do. 10 minutes a day is all it takes. Go ahead, get the notebook out, answer those questions, and I'm sure you're going to just have a truckload of ideas. To stay up with everything here at Killer Innovations, then text the word INNOVATE to 33444. Also, you can visit KillerInnovations.com innovate. I'll send you the course, the two-hour course for free. Don't forget, check out KillerInnovations.com for the show notes. Also, go over to BizTalk Radio. Grab the, the, the mobile app. You can listen to Killer Innovations, the show live, but you can also check out all the other BizTalk Radio shows. If you know of an innovator who has a story that others should hear, drop me a note, Phil, at KillerInnovations.com. Today's show is engineered by Jeremiah. He's sitting in the studio uh, whispering in my ear, nothing like having an engineer whispering in your ear. Uh, but that's what keeps us on track here. Stay tuned. Next week, we've got a great show on a new kinds of technologies to help your kids become more creative. I'm Phil McKinney. This is Killer Innovations on the BizTalk Radio Network, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye bye.
0: The opinions you hear on BizTalk Radio are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect those of this station, BizTalk Radio, its management, or advertisers. The information on BizTalk Radio does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or service. If you have any questions about BizTalk Radio, contact us at 817-274-1609 or at biztalkradio.com.
1: BizTalk Radio.